This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Baumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And today we're talking about the relationship between humanity and the rest of the natural world, and whether there's anything we can do to reverse the damage that humanity has done. Talking about the relationship between people and nature always relies on some mental gymnastics. Like, I know that we are a part of nature, but at the same time, we're a force that acts upon nature. And usually, the rest of nature gets a bit of a raw deal out of the interaction. I'm obviously talking about climate change here, but there are many other ways that we degrade our living world. From ocean acidification, to the proliferation of plastics, to the role that modern civilization plays in spreading pathogens. The degree of the destruction wrought by humanity has been amplified by our very human ingenuity, to what, I guess, you could call an unnatural degree. But what if humanity could use that same ingenuity to do the reverse, to mend the damage done? That's the topic of today's conversation with Elizabeth Colbert. Colbert has spent the last two decades contemplating humanity's impacts on the world, both as a writer for The New Yorker and the author of numerous books, including The Sixth Extinction, An Unnatural History, and, more recently, Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future. In this conversation with Grist staff writer Zoya Tiersten from this year's Crosscut Festival, Colbert is not presenting any kind of panacea. The reality is that the effects of climate change are here, and that mitigation and adaptation will need to be a major part of humanity's response to our changing world. But the technologies she highlights in her reporting, the ones that might heal nature by manipulating it, are intriguing and promising and definitely worth talking about. This conversation and all other conversations on the science and environment track at the 2022 Crosscut Festival is sponsored by John S. Adams, CFP, and UBS, which would like to share the following message. The Arbor Group at UBS has a straightforward mission to help you make the world a better place. Through personal financial planning and sustainable investment management, the Arbor Group works with each of their clients to pursue that client's specific goals. Learn more by visiting ubs.com team slash the Arbor Group. I hope you find this conversation helpful. If you have any feedback, please send it to talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, so I want to start with a question about your beat. Uh, you've been covering climate change for a long time, and things have changed. I know some things have stayed the same, uh, depressingly, such as a large portion of elected Republican officials not recognizing the, uh, the, the, the scientific consensus behind climate change. But some things have changed. Um, there's been a more heated debate about geoengineering, about environmental justice, things have sort of entered the zeitgeist that never were talked about before. So I'm wondering, what has changed for you? What have you noticed? Well, there have been huge changes, I mean, on all levels. When I when I started out on this, you know, beat, 
um, almost 20 years ago, um, I had to really search to find examples, very vivid examples of the impacts of climate change. I spent a lot of time, in fact, in the Arctic where the impacts of climate change are still the most dramatic. But um, nowadays, you know, I, I could go anywhere in the world and find very compelling evidence of climate change. So that has changed much, you know, for the for the worse. Um, I think political awareness is way, way higher than it was when I started out. Uh, and emissions are way, way higher than when I started out. So everything has kind of, I guess you would say everything has has, has gone up. Um, and that's not, you know, that's not what we need, obviously. But um, and also, I do want to say that there has been there has been movement. I mean, you know, there there's a, a, lots and lots of solar panels out there that weren't out there when I started. Lots and lots of wind turbines, um, but because in, emissions have increased so much, you know, around the world, the the overall the net impact is not nearly uh, sufficient. So lots of changes on all levels. Right. Um, one of the things I've noticed that has changed is the way that. Uh, people talk about the natural world. There's been this, um, I think a resurgence of uh, emphasis on natural solutions to climate change. Um, and something that you talk about and write about a lot is what the word natural means. I mean, human beings have left an impact on every cubic foot of air, dirt, water on this planet. Um, and yet there's been this, this really kind of intense conversation around you know, trees, other natural solutions to climate change. So is there such thing as a natural solution? And perhaps better yet, what is an unnatural solution? And can you talk about some of the examples that you that you list in your book of that? Well, the subject of the book really is how profoundly intertwined we are with nature now. And as, as you mentioned, there's really nowhere you can go. And that includes you know, the top of the atmosphere or the bottom of the oceans, you can go online and find um, pictures. There was a Japanese submersible that went to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, which is you know, the deepest part of, of the Pacific Ocean, the deepest part of any ocean, and found plastic down there. So you know, there's really literally nowhere to go where you can't find traces of human activity. Um, and the question, so the question in that context of what is nature and what is you know, human, they're sort of, They've sort of merged at this point. Um, but one of the complexities is, you know, nature, the forces of nature, which include, you know, everything from biology to geology, are still very powerful. So we're messed up in them, but we don't we don't really control them. And we're seeing that very, very um, profoundly with climate change. Although unfortunately, climate change is just one example of the ways that we have really, really messed around with the natural world. Hmm. What what are some other examples? Well, we've completely reshuffled the biosphere. We've moved uh, all sorts of creatures and pathogens. We are discovering that right now with COVID. That's a very, very vivid example, I think. But it's happening uh, to many different pathogens that just don't happen to affect humans. They're being moved, you know, from continent to continent. We have a global, you know, pandemic basically for amphibians. It's a fungal disease which was moved around the world by humans. We have lots and lots of, you know, invasive species have really remade ecosystems, often to the detriment of the species that were there to begin with. And that's 
that's really unprecedented in the history of the planet. You know, if you if you think about it, it was very very difficult for a terrestrial species to cross an ocean in in past you know millennia or whole eons, and it was very very difficult for a marine species to cross a continent. Now that happens all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the there was just a study released that I wrote about. Um, that talked about how climate change is shaking the world like a snow globe and species are coming into contact with one another and they have never met before. Basically animals can't social distance from each other anymore. Um, and they're spreading these pathogens and the fallout could be enormous. And, you know, no one's really preparing for that eventuality, which is more diseases similar to COVID. Um, and, and yes, that's definitely another knock on effect. Um, and it's related to climate change. Um, and actually, you know, the sixth extinction, your, your 2014 book, talks a lot about um, biodiversity, uh, species loss. Um, and this one, the most recent book that you've written, Under a White Sky, um, is about something sort of entirely different. It kind of like moves the conversation to, okay, these things are happening. What do we do now? Um, where do we go from here? And so I guess I'm curious, what inspired you to write that book? What what inspired that idea? Well, it's very much, um, you know, what it follows very, very, very much from from your description of it. You know, after I wrote the sixth extinction, uh, the question really was, okay, we we've set in motion these these processes, most of which have you know pretty dire effects for the other species with whom we share this planet. So some of the chapters were about climate change, some were about what's sometimes called climate change e- equally evil twin, ocean acidification habitat destruction, you know, lots and lots of ways we're changing the world on a, on really on a geological scale. And then the question is, well, okay, what, what, what do we do now? You know, we're, we're, we are not going away anytime soon. Many other species may be going away, but how do we sort of deal with the unintended consequences of what we're doing? And the first piece that I reported uh, that sort of became the book was a piece about trying to manipulate corals so they could survive in warmer water. And that seemed to me, when I started sort of thinking about it, I started to see that pattern of thinking in a lot of different places. Okay, we mess things up in one way, maybe we can, you know, deliberately try to now intervene in a new way to counteract that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wonder, I was thinking about this um, earlier, which is that just sort of the sixth extinction is about humans purposefully, but also inadvertently messing up the natural world, quote unquote, natural world. And this book is about humans taking the utmost care to revive it. Um, and in both cases, humans are, are meddling, right? Um, and I'm wondering, I mean, is this second uh, iteration of, of meddling successful? I mean, are there examples of humans being able to undo some harms that, that we've done? Well, that's, you know, Unfortunately, it sort of depends on what your measure of success is. So, you know, certainly we have um, rescued many species. We brought a lot of species to the brink, let's say, of, of extinction. And then we've swooped in and, you know, in many cases, a surprising number of cases, you know, gathered all of the individuals that we could find, that we could catch that still exist and brought them into you know, captive breeding programs and sometimes brought them back and sometimes brought them back uh, semi-successfully so that they're sort of off life support, usually 
brought them back to the extent that they're still on life support. Those are called conservation uh, reliant species. So, you know, certainly there are lots of, of interventions like that that have worked. Whether there are interventions that have worked on sort of the whole planet scale, I, th I think you have to say at this point, no, but, you know, we're pushing that boundary and we seem determined to sort of find out how far we can go. Right. I mean, it's one thing to try and save the pupfish in Nevada. Um, it's another thing to, for example, um, the heat wave that's sent on, on large swaths of the world right now that's um, going to result in or already resulting in death. Much harder to to sort of figure that one out. I mean, there's there's levels to this, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the um, one of the things that we're learning and we've been pretty slow to catch up to, honestly, <clears throat> is that we are having this this whole Earth impact. There's just nowhere, you know, nowhere to go and nowhere to hide. And that gets a little bit back to the point you made about, you know, pushing all these species into new places. Practically every species in the world is on the move right now, trying to track the climate, often unsuccessfully because, you know, there's a city in the way. Um, but, you know, when you set something like that in motion, um, you know, we're not, one of the things that we're also discovering is we're not, we're not necessarily terribly observant. We're not really keeping track of most species. We don't, we they suddenly pop up in a new place and we, we seem surprised. Um, but when you set a process like this in motion, you're going to get a lot, a lot of surprises. Right. Um, I think that one of the exciting things about reading your book is that um, there's examples of uh, people meddling and, and having success, limited success or just outright success. And there's some examples of things going kind of explosively wrong. Can you talk about those at all? Well, the book, um, you know, in Under a White Sky, I really try to look. It, it, you know, it's something of a dark comedy of our attempt to, you know, intervene in various different ways. And our interventions have, um, you know, the book starts with the reversal of the Chicago River, which was done back in the early part of the 20th century because Chicago, the Chicago River used to run um, through Chicago, it still runs through Chicago, and it carries it carried all of Chicago's sewage and all of the you know guts from the stockyards, and it dumped them into Lake Michigan, where Chicago also gets its drinking water. Uh, so Chicago reversed the Chicago River, and in the process of doing that, they created this channel that now links the Great Lakes water system to the Mississippi water system, and that has had all sorts of unforeseen consequences, which can seem comic, but are also quite devastating to the creatures involved. Um, and one of those impacts has been that Asian carp, which are this invasive species, actually several invasive species, are now working their way towards the Great Lakes. And once again, this has, this has comic elements to it and also really serious elements. Mm -hmm. And and what are the, can you just briefly talk about, you know, the downsides of, of carp moving like that? Well, Asian carp are um, very voracious feeders. They're, they're these four different species, actually, and they have different feeding habits. And all of them are, they're very successful in invaders, they're very successful at being invasive. Um, and they've really just taken over the Mississippi water system. And in some parts of the Mississippi system, they make up something like 75% of the of the fish biomass now. Uh, so they've really pushed aside 
uh, a lot of the um, native species. And another sort of slightly unsung problem that they've caused is one species eats, eats mollusks, they're molluscivores. And there are a lot of endangered mollusks in the southeastern US. And now you add the world's you know, most successful mollusk eating fish on top of these populations of endangered mollusks. And you can kind of see where that's gonna end up. Right. I think that a lot of us, when we think about climate change, we think of these large scale impacts, top down, heat, drought. Um, what I think that you do beautifully is you take these what seem like small examples and show how um, they can have knock on effects through an entire food chain, um, affect things at a level that you wouldn't think possible. Like, what does it matter that carp are, are changing or moving through different areas? But of course, there's these consequences that can stretch on for generations. And that that to me is really fascinating. I mean, as someone who writes about the environment, it can be kind of a slog to write the same kinds of stories over and over again. And the ones that really fascinate me are these bizarre, unexpected stories of little things that are changing the world. And we don't even know it a lot of the time. So um, I wanted to ask you about um, if you had like a favorite example of uh, humans changing the natural world from your book? Is it the super corals shooting diamonds into the sky? Um, is there one that really stood out to you that you still think about? Well, I still think about all of them, really. Let's just say they all made a big impression on me. But I guess if I were to single out one, I, I would single out the super coral, which is, as I mentioned before, the story that really got me going on all this. And there are the ideas that corals really don't like it when water temperatures get too high. They have this symbiotic relationship with a kind of algae and that relationship breaks down in warm water and they expel their algae and they, they basically starve to death. That's the phenomenon known as coral bleaching. And it's really been devastating to reefs around the world, been very devastating to the world's largest reef, the Great Barrier Reef. So the idea behind the super coral project is well, maybe we can sort of breed up these um, corals that will be able to withstand higher water temperatures. And I think that what is so sort of powerful about that story is, you know, on the one hand, um, there's a sense where we have to do something for reefs. We can't just watch them, you know, die. They're incredibly important ecosystems. Um, and on the other, so, so on some level you could say, well, that's sort of a hopeful story. And on the other hand, you know, the scale of the problem is so huge. You know, the, the Great Barrier Reef is the size of Italy. So if you're going to intervene, if you're going to, you know, reseed the reefs, you're talking about, you know, doing something on the scale of Italy, which, which honestly seems quixotic, almost impossible, although people in Australia are talking about uh, doing very large scale interventions. Um, so it's sort of where, uh, you know, hopefulness meets fantasy and it's, it's hard to know where that line is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that um, there's this, this issue, right, where we have a tendency to try and save these really important things. Um, the Great Barrier Reef is a good example. In Australia, they're, um, the, the prime minister there is um, trying to save the Great Barrier Reef, but it hasn't done much to mitigate the emissions that are affecting it in the first place. Um, so it's it's one of those things where it's like, wh what are we trying to achieve here? Um, and I, I guess one might feel a bit hopeless um, looking at the scale of the situation. Um, 
across the board. I mean, not just, I mean, we talked briefly about a species moving around, the world getting shaken like a snow globe, um, the coral bleaching, all of these impacts of climate change seem so huge. Um, after writing your book, did you feel more or less hopeful about our outlook? Well, I, <laughs> my level of hopefulness is not terribly high. Uh, and I think it was, I don't think it moved the needle tremendously, but it, I did in the process of writing the book, I met a lot of people who are really on the cutting edge of, of using some really fantastic tools, you know, including gene editing. Uh, the middle of the book is really about gene editing, which we are getting astonishingly good at. And when I say we, in the book, I do even do an experiment where I gene edit something, you know, in my kitchen. Um, and every day I read another story about an, an organism that's been successfully gene edited for one reason or another. And so I think that, you know, our ingenuity, human ingenuity is incredibly powerful. That's why, you know, sort of why we're in the mess we're in right now. Um, so I never would rule out the possibility that human ingenuity, you know, which got us into this mess, will get us out of this mess. It's not, um, you know, if you're going to Vegas, it's not necessarily what I would bet a planet on, um, but it's not impossible. Mm -hmm. I think that going forward, I mean, as, as governments and people get more desperate to tackle the climate crisis, we're going to increasingly turn to these interventions, some of which you talk about in your book. What uh, advice would you have, or, or what do you hope that, perhaps we can focus on, on politicians, like what do you hope politicians will will um, weigh as they think about implementing some of these interventions? Well, you know, definitely one of the messages of the book, and I covered politics before I covered, you know, climate change and the environment, I covered politics for a long time, and I don't have a lot of faith in our political systems. And one of the ironies is that, you know, the more our political system fails, in a sense, the more we are betting on these technologies. And then we're asking the political system to, you know, regulate or think about these technologies. It's, it's sort of a weird, vicious cycle. But certainly if, if I could speak to politicians, if, if, if they cared, you know, I would say, be very, very careful. You know, we we live in a world of unintended consequences right now. We are We are dealing with them. Our kids will be dealing with them humanity for the, the foreseeable future, and I'm talking, you know, millennia, will be dealing with them. So be very careful when you set things in motion. Mm -hmm. I think that something that I've struggled with recently, I mean, you're not the only writer who's been writing about uh, this concepts of nature and human intervention. Other writers have been doing it too. Nathaniel Rich uh, wrote a book called Second Nature. Emma Maris is writing about um, wild animals and whether any animals are even still wild. Um, and something I've been thinking about is like, you know, we're in this situation where the world is changing rapidly, we're behind it. And there's this nostalgia for going back to how things used to be. Let's just go back. Um, but that's not really possible, right? There's there's no way to sort of unwind the clock. And I, I, I would like to talk about that a bit about how, you know, there perhaps the natural world as we remember it or imagine it to be doesn't really exist. And as you write, more intervention is 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 the only option. Can you talk about that a bit? Well, I, I do want to, you know, offer offer another option. It's not the option, um, you know, that I going back is not possible. I, I think we have to accept that. You know, climate change is not 
stopping once again for the foreseeable future. Ocean acidification is certainly not stopping. Even when we reach, you know, net zero emissions, the oceans are going to continue to take up uh, CO2. We're going to have increasing ocean acidification. So invasive species, you know, you can't really take them back. You can try to eradicate them. And I do talk about some pretty exotic and potentially powerful and potentially very scary ways to do that. But all these things, you know, it's very easy to break an egg. It's very difficult to put the egg back together again. And and that's sort of the message of the book, I think. But I do want to say, you know, um, one of Ed Wilson's, E.O. Wilson's last books um, before he died last year was a book called Half Earth. And in that, the sort of idea is, you know, let's try to put aside as much space as possible for species that are going to be on the move, we know they're going to be on the move because of climate change, to um, regroup, evolve, you know, hope, hopefully make it through. His point was sort of hopefully this century, the 21st century, will be the century of maximum human impacts on the planet. And can we get as many species as possible through this century by sort of leaving them alone to the best of our ability. That is not going to save a lot of species that are on the brink that cannot survive without human intervention at this point. But it might maximize, you know, the number, the sheer number of species that get through. So I do think that that's an important point to make. It doesn't mean that the world isn't going to change. It means the world is going to continue to change. But the notion that we are going to think our way through this and species by species get them through, that does not seem very practical. Mm. I think that, I mean, part of what you just touched on is adaptation, right? There's the this concept that, um, at least that I've been thinking about, which is there's these two groups, right? Mitigation, mitigate the emissions that cause climate change, adaptation, adapt to the climate change that's baked in. But there are limited resources. I mean, um, there's not a lot of money out there for, for these things. There's, there could be more, but there just isn't a lot. And it's going to require a lot of resources to, um, to, to fix, to undo, to adapt. And I'm wondering, um, this is kind of hypothetical, and I don't think that we're here yet, but I, but I wonder whether at some point we're going to have to decide which of these two things we want to spend our limited resources on. I mean, is what you're saying when it comes to species, for example, um, should we be trying to just save as many as we can at this point? Is that what we should be directing our our limited resource towards resources towards, or um, how do we think about how to how to weigh these things? Well, I think it's important when you think about adaptation and mitigation. They're not there's there's a sort of saying in the climate world, you know, manage the unavoidable and avoid the unmanageable. So the idea that we could you know, adapt our way out of a constantly changing climate. Um, I don't think that's very practical either. Now, that's sort of what we are have set in motion. We're just saying, well, you know, we're just going to keep emitting. That means the climate's going to keep changing. And that means that anything that we adapt to now is going to be out of date, you know, pretty soon because you're going to have a new climate and new sea levels. Um, so once again, we we've backed ourselves into a to a corner here. And I think that the point that you're making is extremely important because we're going to be dealing with a lot of bad stuff coming at us and the resources that we have right now, which is you know potentially the moment of maximum prosperity in human history, uh, you know, we're going to have to be 
we're going to have to deal with them potentially in a time of more and more limited resources. So it's a pretty frightening prospect. Um, but once again, you know, when you don't have a choice, um, you maybe rise to the occasion. So I don't think, um, you know, I don't think that that ad adaptation and mitigation are are separable on some level. They have to go together. Uh, mm -hmm. Otherwise, as I say, you're just consigning yourself to um, this sort of treadmill of adaptation that simply cannot be achieved. I mm -hmm. guess that's a mixed metaphor. <laughs> no, I think it works. Um, I want to ask you a question about your writing process. So um, something that me and my colleagues at Grist struggle with occasionally is figuring out how to take a large thing such as climate change that feels so abstract that's not inherently narrative um, and make it interesting and make it relatable and make it um, something that people might want to read. And that's something that you do very well, in my opinion. And I think a lot of people would agree with me that your stories are narrative, that you are are you managed to drill down and we talked about this a little bit earlier on like a small um seemingly irrelevant to climate change sometimes thing and then widen that scope and show us how it ties into all of these different things so how do you decide what you want to write about at the new yorker and um how do you go about reporting those those stories well the new yorker is very narrative driven you know so it's not like necessarily it's not a entirely a personal you know decision it's it's sort of the um genre of the magazine and you know it's a, it's a little bit like a, a you know with the, the old supreme court decision on obscenity you know you sort of know it when you see it and i like all journalists i you know i read a lot i read a lot of other people's stuff and when i come across the thread of something uh, it might be in a piece about something totally different um, and I think, oh, there, there's a thread there. And I sort of, you know, get on the phone like all journalists do and call someone up. And and if, if it seems like there's an interesting enough way to get the story going, I will, you know, just try to get out there wherever there is and um, and take it from there. And, you know, you know, sometimes the, there are problems you have, you know, you haven't foreseen all the problems, <laughs> you haven't foreseen where this will take you. Um, but, you know, usually if you do your homework, you can have a pretty good idea uh, of whether something's going to work or not. Mm -hmm. And looking ahead, do you have any plans to write any further books or any big projects on the horizon for you? <laughs> Well, uh, I do have a project, a big project on the horizon, which I'm afraid I'm not going to talk about right now, um, but it's not a book. How's that? Okay, that'll do. That'll do. <laughs> we'll be back with more after this message. Dreaming of a long-awaited vacation? Take your travels to the next level with Alaska Airlines. They're committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey. From mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and fresh air every two to three minutes. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go, including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next-level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com.
Uh, I want to turn to the audience questions because uh, you all have submitted some really amazing questions here. Um, there's a question for Elizabeth from a person named Alan Temple. And, and they say, what personal philosophy do you subscribe to that helps you deal with what you've learned? Example, Yuval Harari, author of Sapiens, uses a Buddhist method to cope. What do you use? <laughs> I use um, generalized anxiety and I don't recommend it. It's not, I don't, I never hold myself out as a um, person to emulate uh, in, 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 in any way. So I'm afraid I don't have a good answer to that. And I wish I did. And I often feel like I need one, a much better one. I wonder that too. It's, it's hard to figure that one out. And something that I read, I think on Twitter, um, there was a guy who, who's a philosopher and he was talking about how, you know, human beings have gotten ourselves into a really terrible place, but we are a part of the natural world, right? We are animals. And to some extent, perhaps what we're doing is relatively natural. What do you make of that? I mean, that, that to me gave me for some reason, some, some solace, but I don't know if it's really, I mean, helpful tanking the planet because we're humans is not like the most helpful frame of mind, but what do you think? Yeah. I mean, you do, you do hear that like, okay, well, humans are just, you know, biological agents, which is absolutely true and the products of evolution and therefore whatever we do must be natural. But you know, I, I find it hard to say that, you know, that um, that skyscraper there or that, you know, electric vehicle or whatever is natural. Now, if we if you want to say that, if you want to sort of extend that definition so that everything that we do and everything that we make is also natural, then then the border does just disappear. And there's no uh, it's very hard to even have a conversation about it. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a question from Judith Ronig Graham, who uh, asked a question about Ukraine. How badly do you think the war going on in Ukraine will affect climate change? It's a tough question because it's it's still up in the air, right? But but perhaps you have an answer for her. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know there are two possibilities, as there sort of were with COVID, and you know, doubtless we will choose the wrong one, sadly, as we did with COVID, but. Um, you know, one th one possibility would be to use the war in Ukraine to really reevaluate our relationship to fossil fuels. Obviously, you know, Europe is finding itself cut off from a certain amount of Russian oil and gas, and is is having to scramble for that uh, to make up for that. And had they put in place, you know, more renewable energy sources, this problem would be a lot less severe. Um, so that would be one way to say, okay, look, this is just another reminder in case we needed more that we need to get off fossil fuels. Um, but the other possibility and the one that's unfortunately equally likely is that people will sort of use this as an opportunity to say, well, you know, we don't want to depend on Russian oil and gas, perhaps we'll just drill for more of it in the US, you know, and we'll um, build these liquefied natural gas terminals and Europe, which is also on the table now, and because, and then we'll ship American gas to Europe. And so, you know, I think uh, it could be used to justify a lot of new fossil fuel infrastructure, or it could be used to say, to justify uh, a much faster and more energetic transition off fossil fuels. And, you know, as I say, we, we've tended to always make the wrong call or often make the wrong call in my view, but, um, there's still a possibility that it will that that we will make the right call. But I agree with with you 
that it's sort of too soon to tell right now. Yeah. And if anything, I think that signs point to the latter situation unfolding. I mean, President Biden just recently um, opened up uh, drilling on public lands, something that he said he would never do on the campaign trail. Um, a lot of natural gas companies are, are breaking ground on new projects, um, which to some extent is necessary, right, to like con- con- combat the you know rising gas prices at pumps. There's some very real uh, present day issues facing I guess in Joe Biden's mind, voters. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, it's 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 tough and it's still ongoing. Um, there's another question um, from someone named Randy Howard, which I think is really great. Um, he says, "Under a white sky is a great book. How will we know when we've done sufficient work on preventing or mitigating climate change?" Which I've never, I've actually never that question's never occurred to me before. So I'm curious what you think. Well, I think that the um, you know mantra which you know, at this point is kind of so overused as to almost be meaningless, but it does have a meaning. We will have done sufficient work on climate change when we have reached, well, it won't be sufficient, but we will have uh, done good work on climate change when we have when we reach net zero emissions. Um, and I mean that in the strictest possible sense. We are not emitting any more than... Um, there's take up by either the oceans, which has its own bad effects, so I don't want to let us off the hook, uh, or the biosphere. And those that means that emissions have to be extremely low, a sm- very small fraction of what they are right now. Um, that is the only endpoint that uh, stabilizes the climate. Until then, we have this constantly changing climate that I spoke of earlier. Mm-hmm. And I guess to some extent, people alive today might might never know if we've done enough. I mean, the the point is that we're we're putting it f- towards the future, putting it forward. I talked to a climate scientist named Andrew Dessler at Texas A and M, and I asked him um, for a different for a story a long time ago. Um, you know, what at what point will emissions come down? And he said, I was hoping he would say 100 years, 200 years, and he said, oh, maybe in a thousand years, two thousand years, ten thousand years. So whatever we do now. Is it's a future project. Um, we're just basically um, putting a down payment on on a more livable planet, right? Um, we have another question from someone named Ann Posner who wants to know what individuals living in different places in the U.S. who are not billionaires can do about this awful situation. I expect she means climate change. Well, I, I think that there are two things, and there's sort of, you know somewhat camps in the environmental movement. And I guess I would say I belong to both camps or neither camp, depending on how you want to look at it. You know, there's the um, change your life idea and there's the, you know, that doesn't matter idea. Um, All that matters is political action. And I'd say both matter. I think, you know, setting an example, doing the kinds of things that if everyone did them would make a big difference. The lifestyle changes as they're, you know, unattractively called. I do think that's important. And I also think that political organizing and, you know, political action are very, are super important. There's obviously nowhere we're going to get there uh, without that. But I, I don't, I also don't feel that we can just all go on doing exactly what we want by, you know, building bigger houses and buying bigger cars and, you know, flying at the drop of a, of a pin uh, and 
have political change at the same time. I don't I don't think they go they go together. They suggest that we're not serious about this. So I really think we need uh, both at the same time. Mm -hmm. I think um, I want to ask a question about technology um, that stems from a question someone named Trip Williams just asked. Uh, he basically wants to know, is there anything that technology can't fix that that we should get used to not having? And I think the Elon Musks of the world would have you think that there's nothing technology can't fix. And if we can't fix it, we can just go to Mars. Um, but I think it's a valid question. I mean, is there, in the course of reporting your book, did you come across things where you were like, we're going to have to get used to to this just not being around or to, to a different world? Well, I think that, there, yeah, I mean, I think that there are a lot of things that technology probably can't, can't fix. For example, you know, there's a lot of um, people making fake meat. A lot of people would say fake meat isn't meat. It's very difficult to get, um, you know, a hamburger, genuine hamburger uh, made from a cow uh, that doesn't produce a lot of greenhouse gas emissions. So I think a lot of the ways that we eat um, are probably, you know, I, I, it's hard for me to predict the future. I, you know, predictions are difficult to make, as the old saying goes, especially about the future. But I do think if we're, you know, ever going to get um, are really drive emissions way, way down. We're going to have to eat very differently. For example, I don't think, you know, we're going to invent a cow that doesn't belch methane. I think that's going to be extremely difficult to do. Um, so those, those, that's something that I think technology, you know, we may have to learn to eat very differently. Um, if it's something synthetic, you know, um, we are very good at, at figuring out new ways to do things new ways to extract you know minerals from the world we're, we're quite good at that so i wouldn't want to say that technology can't you know come up with substitutes for most material objects but it's hard for technology to come up with substitutes for for biology mm -hmm. i don't know if you saw this but they um some climate tech company invented a like a gas mask for cows where that can capture the the Anything is possible. So maybe I'll even be proved wrong on this. Maybe we will now have gas masks for cows. Yeah. And then yeah, can... maybe, but it feels a little, you know, making that number of gas masks available for, for the world. I mean, we can barely even get enough masks out there for people with COVID. So I don't know. I don't know how feasible that really is. Yeah. Um, I think we have time for one more question. And I'm just trying to pick the one that I think that you might enjoy. Um, well, here's a tricky one. Andrew Luck wants to know where you stand on the overpopulation versus overconsumption debate. Well, that's a really good question. And I want to say, I don't, I really don't think there should be any, you know, debate here because once again, it's sort of like not, the answer isn't either or, the answer is both. Um, you know, our impacts on the planet are a product of how many people there are and how much they're consuming. And parts of the world where population is still growing pretty rapidly tend to be very low consuming parts of the world. And parts of the world where population is leveling off because of you know, people having fewer kids um, tend to be very high consuming places. So both of those in continued population growth in places where they still have high population growth levels, that is something that we really need to work on. Uh, as, as a world and the overconsumption of high consuming 
uh, low birth rate parts of the world is something we really, really need to work on. So, you know, it's not an either or, it's definitely a both. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's a good note to leave things on. We've just about run out of time here. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being with us, for chatting about all of these different and complicated topics. We really appreciate your time. Oh, thanks for having me. And that's it for today's episode. Thanks again to Elizabeth and Zoya for the talk. And thanks also to the folks in the audience who asked questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, go to crosscut.com events. This episode of CrossCut Talks was produced by Sarah Bernard and engineered by Rusty Bacall and Victoria Ralph. And the event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. And Chris Novich managed our audience engagement. You can subscribe to CrossCut Talks wherever you listen. And if you like the show, please review us. It helps other people find us. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit CrossCut.com. And if you would like to support the work that we do at CrossCut, whether it's the live events we host every month or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to CrossCut.com membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9. Crosscut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Baumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.